Welcome to another edition of the Morning Devotional. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. This is edition number 37 of season eight as we continue working through the Westminster Confession of Faith. My name is Pastor William Hill. I'm the pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church located in Evansville, Indiana. Today we begin looking at a new chapter, chapter seven of God's covenant with man. We'll consider the first paragraph of this very important chapter that acts as a bridge between the bad news that we've considered at length in chapter six to the good news that is found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray first and then we'll consider this paragraph together. Father, as we now look at matters related to your condescension and how you have condescended to our lowly estate, the misery that we are in, you have determined to descend to our, 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 our state and you in the person of Christ give, gave us hope. You did that by means of covenant. We pray that we would see the glory of our God in how you gave to us this co- these covenants. And you did that, that you might rescue a people from their sinful condition. We ask that you'd be merciful to us. And this time we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. <clears throat> well, it would probably be proper in dealing with matters related to the covenant to go into a great lengthy discussion about the various aspects of the covenant there are of which there are two the covenant of works as well as the covenant of grace but under the covenant of grace there's multiple administrations of that covenant there is the adamic covenant then we have the noahic covenant the the mosaic uh, the abrahamic covenant the mosaic covenant and then the new covenant or the the um davidic covenant and then of course we have the new covenant and they're expressed differently but they build one upon another throughout the corpus of the bible but when we're dealing with a covenant, what we're really dealing with was, is the aspects to which this first paragraph points us to. When it tells us in chapter 7, paragraph 1, the distance between God and the creature is so great. Now let's just stop there and think about this. Paragraph 6, or chapter 6, told us about our sin and the miseries that come to us because of it. That causes this great division between a holy God and sinful man. That distance is so great that the only solution would be for God to act. We can do nothing. For we are miserable creatures of dust. We are sinful people. If God does not act, we have no hope in the world. And so this is what the paragraph tells us, that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, that is to say, just by virtue of the fact that God made you, you owe obedience to Him. He is the God of heaven. He is the eternal God. He made all things. And because he's made you, he owns you. He has placed, stamped, as it were, his image upon you, which reminds me of the, 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 the time in which Jesus compelled people to go and bring to him a coin. And they asked, he asked them whose inscription is on it. And Caesar's, the coin belongs to Caesar. But in the same sense, because God has stamped his image upon you and me, we owe him everything, every ounce of our life, every breath that we breathe, every thought that goes through our mind, it all must become, come under the conformity of the God who made us. We're not even talking about God as Redeemer right now. We're simply looking at Him as the one who has made all things. And so while it's true that we owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, yet they can never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. 
Now let me read just briefly at least one person's opinion as to the definition of covenant. There's, there's different definitions I recognize, but here's one that might help. Uh, again, this is Chad Van Dixhorn's book, Confessing the Faith. He says, Anytime one spots a sovereignly determined and administered arrangement between God and man with penalties and promises, you have a covenant. That's what we're looking at here. This is what God has determined to do. He has determined to do this because this distance exists between us. It's so great of an existence that we would never, ever, 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 ever seek out God. He's got to do it to us. We are the wandering uh, sheep. He must pursue us. Otherwise, we have no chance and we have no hope. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 through 17 captured this, I think, quite well. When we read there, and again, jumping right in the middle of a context. You probably should back up to verse 9. But anyway, beginning with verse 13 of Isaiah 40, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the God of heaven, the creator, regards us as grasshoppers. He sits above the circle of the earth, and he looks down upon us as nothing, we are but dust. And chapter 6 of the Confession emphasized that point quite clearly. But yet God was kind. He determined to condescend to our lowly estate and rescue us from our misery in this world. And so in Psalm 113, again, we take note of this fact of God's greatness and condescension. Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6, Who was like the Lord our God, who was seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens in the earth? The answer is obvious. There is no one. God is mighty. He's beyond our comprehension. But yet God determined to covenant with people. In that first creation, when he made Adam and Eve, he gave them a covenant of works. We're going to get into more details on this later, but there he gave them a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Hey, don't do that. You'll live with me perpetually forever and perpetual obedience forever. 
Don't, if you do disobey me, you will be cast away from my presence. Well, we know what happened. But then in Genesis chapter 3, he gives again another covenant and he promises to the seed of the woman that this matter in which all of creation has been tossed and all of his creatures, the crown jewel of his creation has been tossed into this misery of sin, will be rescued by the work of that one that comes to the seed of the woman. That is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. We fast forward then. We go to the Noahic covenant. The world was a mess. There was evil everywhere. Why? Because of sin. And the thoughts of man's heart were continually evil and wicked. Genesis chapter 6, when God found in Noah a blameless and righteous man, not because he earned God's favor, but because God purposed to rescue him and save him. And so he saves Noah and his family, places him in the ark, shuts him in, gives to them more covenant, more revealing of himself to sinful people. We fast forward to Abraham and we see how God plucked him out of a pagan nation, an idolatrous nation, rescued him, saved him, made his name great and promised that through him there would be a seed that would come after him that would number the sands of the seashore and the stars in the heavens. All of it rooted in Christ. And we see that example in Genesis 22 in which Abraham was told to, to execute his own son, the son of promise, and then God provided a, a, um, a substitute. We fast forward even to the Mosaic Covenant when God shows forth His holiness by giving to us the law, a law that was given to all men, written on their heart, but now inscripturated and given specifically to the people of God that if you love me and you've been redeemed by me, you will serve me and live according to the ways in which I command. We fast forward to the Davidic Covenant and we see in Him, He, the King, will never be without a king on the throne. That is Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We go to the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. We see how the law of God would be placed upon the hearts of men. He will redeem a people to himself. All of these things God has been pleased to do to exercise these things that he might rescue us from that which chapter 6 of the confession said is part and parcel of our lot in this world and life. So in Acts chapter 17, we see in verses 24 and 25, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, although he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This God condescended. He needs none of us. He does not need to rescue us. He does not need our opinions, our counsel, our wisdom, or any of it. He stands in need of nothing. And He would still be the God of heaven and earth. He would be the almighty God, greater than our minds can possibly fathom if He determined not to even create. But He did. And in creating and in the fall, He purposed to covenant with us, condescend to our lowly, miserable estate that He might save and rescue us from our, our sinful condition. People say the God of heaven is not a, he's not a gracious God. Chapter, this paragraph in chapter 7 disagrees. He is a God who covenanted. He is a God who condescended. He came down low. He stooped with us. And in the person of Christ, he walked with us. In Jesus Christ, the God-man who explains our God in his person. He is gracious. He is kind. If you know Christ today, it's because He condescended to your lowly estate. If you don't know Him, that offer is there. It's placed before you. The God of heaven, who will by no means clear the guilty, offers to you, by way of covenant, 
a contract, a promise that He made in His Son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, that if you're found in Him, you will be eternally saved. Well, I trust these times are helpful for you. I hope they are. If you have any comments or questions, you can leave me a note. The way to reach me is there before you on the screen. And so until the Wednesday edition, when we consider paragraph two and the first covenant that was made, may the Lord help you today. May you walk in His ways. God bless.